Recording in progress. This is episode one of Queer Brood, a podcast about how queer people make family. Produced at 3CR Radio by Anya Saravanan, Lauren Bull, Sharmini Joseph and Darcy O'Connell. Queer Brood acknowledges this program is produced on the sovereign lands of the Wandry people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge Elders past and present. Sovereignty was never ceded. My name is Darcy O'Connell and I'm sitting here with my partner Anya Saravanen. Anya, this podcast was your idea. Why have we done this? <laughs> Darcy, it's a complicated question. Why we decided to do the podcast has shifted and changed over the course of actually making it. So when I first thought of doing the podcast, me and Lauren, we were talking about the potential of having kids someday and what that looks like for us. And I saw a blank slate in front of me. I couldn't actually picture what having a kid and what having a family like that would look like. And that's because I grew up in an environment where I couldn't see any other queer people, much less queer parents. I couldn't see what the possibility of having a queer family looked like and how to navigate all the different challenges and of course the joys that come along with it. So, you know, even if I didn't want that particular future, the fact that I couldn't see it was frightening to me. Mm -hmm. So I thought, Let's do some research. And for me, that meant talking to different people, talking to queers who have made families, whether, you know, it's with um, having a biological child or fostering kids or if kids were not even part of the, the picture but they've made families in some other way. So I wanted to talk to all of them and figure out what their thoughts were and what challenges they faced, what, what sort of joys that came along with it and how they're navigating their day, day in, day out with that sort of queer family. And so that's how it started. And what I was looking for was an answer about whether or not to have a kid by the end of it. I have not made a decision yet. However, I think listening to these people talk about their decision-making and what biological family means to them, what chosen family means to them, how they define family, and sort of legal, medical, social implications of various decisions. All of that, I think, has led me to believe that whatever path I choose, I'll be okay. I think I needed to hear that from queers of all genders and sexualities and, you know, whatever it is that it'll be okay, whatever path you choose. So what can listeners expect to hear about in the next few episodes? So we've got a total of seven episodes, including this one, and we're discussing a wide range of topics from surrogacy to IVF, which is the sort of, you know, medical, legal sort of implications of having um, a biological child. But we also talk about sort of bigger structural issues or considerations that parents can have when deciding to have a child or not. For example, in episode seven, we talked to Sham and Hannah, who are an interracial queer couple and for Sham it was a very big factor about you know what what race his baby was going to be because of what it could mean for that baby later on in their life and what sort of implications it could mean but you know it led to having all these wider conversations about race and culture and ethnicity and belonging. We also hear from Paul and Brent in episode four about the experience of being older queers and having lived through the HIV crisis and what that means in terms of having a family and and building a family together. We hear from 
a beautiful blended family in episode five across various countries and various ages and um, what that means for, for them personally, the joys and challenges that comes with it, but also the sort of structural issues they face. We talk to Tash in the next episode about being a First Nations person and what that means in terms of being queer as well and in the sort of kinship structures that are different and what that means for her. So lots of really interesting topics and I'm really excited for listeners to listen to all of them. Do you want to be on the community radio? That's right. That sounds like a yes. <laughs> this episode is called Hardcore Body Hack. The queer brood we're talking to are Asia and Mary and their baby Ocean. They touch on stories like their love story, the decision to have a child, delaying medical transition, induced lactation, and perspectives on raising a child without assigning gender. First, we're going to hear new parents, Asia and Mary, introduce themselves. My name is Mary. I'm a trans woman. My pronouns are she, her. And I guess like I do a mix of like, I make music and I do computer programming and I'm a mum of this eight-month-old baby with Asia. And I'm Asia. My pronouns are she and her. Um, I'm a mum of Ocean. I'm also, I guess, a social worker, um, sometimes community organiser and a friend, a lover, a partner, uh, a community member. Yeah, beautiful. And I think Ocean was joining in in the introductions there as well. Maybe we'll start from when the first seed in your mind was planted about having a baby. <clears throat> Can you tell me about that moment? Did you arrive at it together or did one of you start talking about it or what was that like? I remember that moment really vividly. We were in a tent in, I think, somewhere between... Adelaide and Alice Springs, we were on a road trip and we were camping at night and we we brought a few books with us to read and one of them was Maggie Nelson's Ar The Argonauts and we were reading the book out loud to each other as we do sometimes in the tent and you know basically in, in the book, the book is like an autobiography about like Maggie Nelson and her partner Harry um, having a baby and they just talk a lot about queer family making and yeah and I think that's when that spark kind of appears for us and we're like oh like maybe we can have a baby one day and I think that was the first time that like we talked about it together as a possibility for us yeah the book kind of like tells the story of her being pregnant while her partner is like um just starting to medically transition and the changes that they both experience in their bodies and I guess how they integrate all those changes into like all of the kind of full spectrum of the cultural lives that they've been living as queer people and um, they engage a lot with like critical theory and philosophy in the book as well and so it was it's really nice um, experience reading it and just kind of thinking really deeply about what it means to have a family and um, to make a baby and to go through these really big changes. Mm. Um, yeah, it was really ex expansive. Totally. Like, it really kind of reframed for me 
a bit what family can mean and really to get outside this, you know, heteronormative narratives that we are surrounded by. I really appreciated her being really honest about all this visceral stuff about giving birth, like, you know, shitting yourself or having your perineum ripped open. It's not usually something that people talk about when they talk about birth. Yeah, it's like so coded in euphemisms, like the way people talk about. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's all about this kind of, you know, really profound experience, which which it is. Like, yeah, giving birth to a child is really profound on some levels. But it's also really full-on and visceral and, and kind of a bit gross as well. Um, and yeah, having her talk about it so honestly was, I don't know. Um, kind of reframes it a bit. It's like a bit hardcore or like... Yeah, a bit queer. <laughs> yeah, queer. <laughs> it's interesting because I think multiple people have used the word hardcore when <laughs> talking about making a family now. What was the research process like? Like what exactly were you thinking about? I guess one of the things was um, about the whole HRT process and how I decided to time it so so we didn't have to go through like a costly IVF. right yeah. yeah yeah that was just like a thing to put in the calculations i guess okay we're gonna have a baby and i also really want to start hrt so i ended up kind of delaying that for quite a while um until we were, we were ready to we decided we were ready to try to um yeah there's also such limited research actually like, on like the impact of HRT on trans women and how it impacts fertility. The, the doctors kind of tell you that you're just like, you should go to a, like a sperm bank and like expect to have to go through IVF if you're going to want to have a baby after you start HRT. So um, yeah, that was just like a thing to put in the calculations, I guess. Um, and how was that... Um, I guess, emotionally for you? Was that a difficult decision to make or was it just the most practical thing that you had to do? Um, yeah, it was kind of shit. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, like, yeah, I think I feel glad to have not had to, like, conjure thousands of dollars and for us to have to go through, like, um, a maybe invasive and also, yeah, emotionally, emotionally strenuous bodily experience, like, that was, um, yeah, there's just like a lot of compromise, I guess, like in this whole situation, um, and it's not easy um, either way. But that ended up being what worked for us. And as you, you, I think we've talked about this before, that you don't have much family support here or any family. Yeah, I don't have any blood family in Australia except for Ocean now. All my family is like back in Poland or other places in Europe. Yeah, so I guess that was um, also something that we had to factor in that I guess there isn't this like default thing to, to lean on. But at the same time, I think we have a pretty strong friendship group and pretty strong community support so we have a best friend who like even years before we talked about having a baby was like if you guys ever have a baby I'm gonna be an auntie and she was like 100% committed to that so I guess that gave us a little bit of peace of mind that you know 
that we're not gonna be yeah in this journey alone that there's gonna be someone who is actually really there for us and wanting to see this family thrive and and be a part of this family and that person also was there while ocean was being born so yeah her and mary were together in the birth room yeah I'm asking that because I, you know, I'm in a quite a similar boat where I don't have any blood family um, here. And I often wonder, you know, who do I look up to or even things like, I don't know, I'm sure my mom would have had a thousand pregnancy tips, you know, foisted on her when she was pregnant, which she would hopefully pass on to me at some stage, but then not having her around for whatever reason. I often wonder if I'm missing out um, or there's no one to look up to and know that things are going to be okay. Mm. And one of the fears that I have is that pregnancy already is such an emotional journey. Can I put this on it as well? Mm. Um, so I just asked to find out how you felt navigating all those emotions at the same time. Yeah, it was interesting. And I actually had um, me and my mom, you know, we talk regularly, but um, we're not a very emotional family. We don't really talk heaps about emotions. It's usually like, quite practical conversations that we have of kind of, you know, how was your week? Yeah, I went to work and blah, blah, blah. But when I was pregnant, it was actually, yeah, for the first time in a really long time that um, my mom sort of opened up and told me about her experiences of pregnancy, which were quite difficult because before I was born, my, my mom was pregnant with another child and that child was born prematurely and passed away. And, and I knew that bit, like, we would always be really open about that and, you know, we would go to the cemetery and visit this child's grave and she was, like, always present as a part of our family who, you know, who has passed away. But my mom actually opened up about the whole experience of being in hospital and then developing gestational diabetes, which I also was diagnosed with. And at the time, in hospitals in Poland, they didn't have much knowledge about how to manage such a pregnancy. So, you know, I guess with the knowledge that we've got now, like, it's quite obvious that that baby could have been, like, would have survived in this day and age and maybe in this country. And then when she was pregnant with me, like, I guess that was all, like, emotionally, she was still kind of thinking about that loss and she was really freaked out because, you know. She was also, like, really unsupported in the whole process. Yeah, she was really unsupported in the whole process. It just seemed like... Treated quite badly in the hospitals. Yeah, she was treated quite badly. She was blamed for things that... um, you know, she didn't know she was not supposed to do, like, I don't know, drinking sugary drinks. Like, I think no one really educated her on that. Yeah, so I guess when she first found out that I was pregnant, her reaction was really emotional and almost like expecting that it would be harder for me than, than it actually was because when she was pregnant with me, she spent three months in hospital, like, under observations and she totally thought that my experience was gonna be like that, which which it really wasn't. I was kind of just managed, but I was at home the whole time. And uh, so in a way it was quite beautiful to connect with my mom like that and quite an emotional journey, I think for both of us. How was that experience like of being in the medical system as this quite openly queer couple? 
How was it when you were pregnant? How is it now? Has it changed? Or what's your experience of the medical system been like? It's actually kind of quite hard to get continuity of care when you're going through it all. Like getting, just seeing the same midwife, like as you kind of have all these appointments um, in the lead up. So we ended up trying to find a private midwife who, who we could afford. But then because Isaac got gestational diabetes, we couldn't see her anymore because that was the hospital policies. Because when you are considered high risk, then it has to be managed by doctors and not midwives. And they are way more kind of just risk focused, really. Yeah, they just want to make sure that like medically you are as safe as you can be. about the gendered nature of being pregnant and yeah. a lot of mom and dad and you know a lot of women yeah. give birth and totally yeah a lot of I guess little boy little girl that was another reason we wanted like to be seeing the same person as much as we could just to avoid having to like re-explain hmm. which actually in the end um I think the experience while I was giving birth was pretty excellent because we did have that on our file that we both want to be referred to as mother, the baby, the baby's pronoun will be they, them, and we're like not, you know, assigning any gender at this stage. And pretty much everyone, all the midwives and all the doctors, because I did end up having a cesarean, I had to stay for three days um, after birth in hospital. And I probably would have seen like 20 different people. And I think everyone except one person were like pretty good, you know? Yeah. Excellent. Coming into them, like, yeah. how are they? How is the baby? How mm. are they? We really um, overestimated how bad things would be <laughs> in the hospitals, which, um, yeah, I mean, we were pleasantly surprised. Yeah, in terms of the queer stuff, I think they're yeah. actually pretty good. Yeah. And, I think one, one of the midwives was a trans woman as well, which, yeah. which was quite amazing to, to experience. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, incredible. I mean, it's sort of that over-preparing thing is just something we do, I think, as queer people to expect the worst and then things go well to be pleasantly surprised that we can treat it well. Yeah. <laughs> Who was your chosen community slash family and how did you depend on them? As you mentioned, like, a lot of people bringing us meals. It's hard to overstate like how much of an impact that had. Um, like being fed every day, like mostly like home cooked meals, was not only like a lot less labor that we had to do and money that we had to spend, but also just like was really like emotionally and spiritually did a lot for us. Like in this really hectic hectic time. And if any of those people are listening to this, thank you so much. We love you. We love you so much. The other thing is, like, in the weeks after Ocean was born, like, we had two really good friends uh, living with us in the house. And what we ended up doing was creating a a roster where we were all kind of rotating who would be supporting Ocean to... For their feeds. Um, yeah, just for the context, Ocean was um, pretty underweight. They lost a lot of weight after birth because my milk was like late to come in. And they were put on this really strict feeding regime. It was really important for them to, you know, keep putting on weight. But with that support, it felt like so doable because it was just like, okay, tonight I'm going to wake up at 1am and that's it. Or 
just 5 a.m. and that's it. Yeah, um, I guess the idea was to, because I had to wake up most of the times to breastfeed or body feed. But the idea was that I every night I get at least six hours of sleep. So then someone else, I can either express yeah. the milk and someone else will give it. Just having that, the, I guess like the three of us supporting Asia just like gave us all like that much more energy to support support you in all these other ways. I guess. Yeah, so. I don't know what I would have done without that support because, yeah, sleep deprivation is hell. <laughs> and actually these two friends are still quite... Um, like heavily involved in Ocean's upbringing yeah. Um, and yeah I think that's really beautiful also for Ocean to you know to be building relationships mm. with all of these people who are chosen family both of them when we like shared the idea of having a baby they were kind of just like well I, I would be so grateful to be involved you know or to you know and and yeah to be part of the family really Broadcast on community radio stations across Australia and on your favourite podcast app, this is Queer Brood, a show about queer families. In this episode, we're hearing from new parents of Ocean, Asia and Mary. In the next part of our conversation, Mary discusses induced lactation. So, so basically, cis women can induce lactation, which is when you take some medication called a galactagogue. <laughs> which is a really cool word, <laughs> um, which is just like a type of drug that helps produce prolactin, which is the hormone that leads to milk production in your breasts. So you take the medication, you also have to like stimulate your breast, your nipple to produce milk. What you end up doing is pumping and that's with the medication, that's like kind of really the big thing that ends up producing prolactin. But Anyone with breast tissue can can do this. It has no relation to like what your genitals are or anything like that. So I heard about it and I yeah, I was like, I'm kind of interested in this. Like I'm I I really love this idea of being able to breastfeed ocean and I don't know if it can happen, but I'm really keen to give it a try. Basically I started seeing an endocrinologist and he was like super supportive and really lovely and was like I've never helped someone do this before like I've I've heard about it there are two published scientific papers about trans women inducing lactation and uh, I'm gonna have a read of them and get back to you and then we can make a plan and I started going through the process from uh, about six weeks before Ocean was born and spoiler alert, it didn't it didn't work for me. <laughs> I tried really hard. Um, produce a little bit of milk. I, I did produce some milk. Um, a few Ocean drops. Ocean did have Mary's milk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was in the order of drops. Um, but I was kind of pumping every day for a few months and taking like something like eighteen pills a day or something. It's like a lot to make this happen. Yeah, what happened to me was that, I, you know, I was trying to do this, like, best of both worlds thing where we could, like, kind of conceive with my, like, fertility unaltered by HRT and then go straight onto HRT and then develop breasts and then lactate within, um, like, nine months or, like, six months, which is ridiculous <laughs> and doesn't really work. Um, I really wanted to believe it would work, 
like this like hectic body hacking thing. It's hardcore. Yeah, <laughs> it was a bit hardcore. Yeah. Hardcore. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I really like this idea of just like, I don't know, maybe doing this thing that's not very well documented. It is incredible though, and to know that option is available, and I hope mm. that people listening to it will now know that you know that's something they can research or do. Totally. Or, yeah. yeah. You don't really hear about it much, but that's amazing. Um, yeah. I think. If there was anything about my medical care that I would have would give feedback on was like maybe, which I don't uh, blame my endocrinologist for, but like just a bit of ex- expectation setting. I, I think just for anyone inducing lactation is pretty hard. Like it's a big job. I think the pumping, yeah. Yeah, just like you know, taking taking all these hormones is a lot, but then just like the physical commitment of pumping is quite a lot mm-hmm. um, in order to make it work like it's not a small thing mm-hmm. so you know if we were to have another baby i think i would give it another go but i i do want people to know about it it is a really cool thing that bodies can do and yeah if you're up for the challenge i guess <laughs> yeah. i think it would just would have been so amazing i really like this idea of like us both being able to provide in this way mm-hmm. for ocean and, and that like really um i guess I think it would have felt very affirming, gender-wise, but also just like in terms of our dynamic as a, as a couple kind of coming into parenthood, and yeah, like Ozzy already having like taken on this enormous bodily process of pregnancy and birth, and then breastfeeding as well as this massive thing. Like it's the amount of labor is just like so high, and I was like, well, if there's anything I can do to mitigate that and and to help create a more equitable dynamic like I'm, I'm willing to give it a go but at a certain point I was like oh I'm getting really diminishing returns or no returns actually um <laughs> so maybe I should just redirect that energy into other kinds of other parts of parenting what advice would you give other queer people considering parenthood I guess one thing that I was really fixated on when I thought about research and planning was birth because it's such a huge event and because, you know, there was no, I had no precedent, I had no idea what it was going to be like, but, you know, birth is just one day. Like if you have a cesarean, you have to stay in hospital for three days, but you know, that's, that's it. And then you've got a baby and you've got, you know, 18 plus years. So... I would say focus on that when you do your research and think about, you know, um, yeah. It's so easy to hyper-focus on the birth. It's so easy to hyper-focus. We were doing and, that. Yeah, it also <laughs> makes sense because it's such a huge unknown and, and there's kind of nothing like that that, you know, people who give birth for the first time would have experienced. But yeah, think about what's next, you know, what's going to happen in the next three months because that's probably when you're going to be extremely busy with caring for a newborn. Like Mary mentioned, just the body feeding itself takes so much time that you kind of end up feeling like that's all you do. Yeah, I guess if you're queer, just make sure to seek out any narratives that you can get about um, queer parenting and, you know, such as this podcast. But also see if you, we, you know, when, when I got pregnant, we were like, wow, we don't really know any queer parents. And then it turned out that a bunch of friends or people that we knew in the community friends were of friends. friends of friends, mm. 
were pregnant at the same time or you know had just given birth so we reached out to these people and yeah and at the moment we have like a pretty nice little community of six families where we we are on signal chat together and we can give each other advice but we also just started a bit of a play group together and we're planning in the future to organize a bit of a collective childcare where we can care for each other's kids and in some small ways it's already it's already happening that we drop off kids to each other and you know can have a few hours of free time here and there but yeah definitely like seek out your community and um yeah, I think being a queer parent in the mainstream setting can be quite isolating. We did a few things. We did birthing classes that were quite kind of shocking to attend, really. When we, yeah, it was us and maybe three kind of heterosexual couple, couples. And, and just kind of seeing, yeah, just the level of them conversations where, you know, a guy would be making so much sacrifice and he would pack the dishwasher because the wife is too pregnant to bend and we were like wow clap 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 mm. that's, that's really impressive mate yeah it's um it just can be quite a lot to uh. to be surrounded by mainstream narratives of parenting i guess like on being trans and becoming a parent like I, yeah i feel like i've been like in this like pretty drawn out space of transitioning I mean, I mean I was saying before that I'm kind of career transitioning as well at the moment but also like in terms of my gender transitioning like I feel like my process has been really slow uh, much a lot slower than I would probably like it to be because I've had I've just taken on a lot and I think transitioning to becoming a parent is a lot and and like yeah not that I regret it or anything but just like that it's something to consider but the good thing is that like I have supportive people all around me and I, I don't um have a lot of exposure to people like undermining me or who I am so like that's you know really um I think that helped me feel like more secure to be able to have things be going slowly. But I, I guess everyone's context is different in terms of what that process looks like. I don't even really know if I'm at the point of giving advice. Like I feel like we're still <laughs> we're still so new to it. Like yeah, that's hard um, enough. Though. I mean, we're really like such. Uh, baby parents <laughs> really. maybe that's like advice in itself because i think when we first got pregnant i think we had like a few moments of freaking out that like oh my god we're gonna be parents really soon and we need to and you know what babies do and how do we respond to these babies needs and yeah we really thought that we need to kind of have it all together and like learn about how to care for you know from infancy to <laughs> 18 years old and it's not like that you know you you have a two-week-old you kind of read about what a two-week-old means mm. and you just you keep adapting it's like keep adapting it's just a just, process like yeah you don't you can't be ready for the whole thing no you just have to be open, open and you shouldn't to the expect yourself to be and you really you know just figure it out together with 
with your baby. And they will tell you what they need. Why ocean? Why did you pick the name ocean? Ooh, I guess it's not like a really straightforward story, but um, we wanted a name that um, is kind of gender, gender neutral. And we had a bit of a short list. I'm really attracted to water. Probably actually more to fresh water than salt water. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we were like, oh, maybe river, but... Uh. Oh, that's too hippie. <laughs> We love. We do love rivers. So we shortlisted some some names that are gender neutral, and I think I also wanted something that that is a little bit Polish as well. But in Poland, the name system is very binary, and until like ten years ago, it was actually not permitted to give your kid a gender ambiguous name. So it had to be like very clearly a male or a female name. So. Ocean is not, not a name in Polish, but the name the name for the ocean is spelled in the same way in Polish. So I was like, okay, that sort of works. It's kind of English and Polish simultaneously. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, if it was Polish, would be saying, let's say on. The link is kind of there. Mm. And then when I was pregnant, we went on a little holiday on the Great Ocean Road. And that's where we f- uh, first felt Ocean Kick. Next, we get to hear Azia and Mary's thoughts on raising a child without assigning gender. We had this pretty strong impulse, I guess, to not assign a gender, I guess. As people say, like, you know, assigned male, assigned female at birth, or sometimes people say coercively assigned. And so I had this kind of idea or value maybe bringing a human into the world that they should be able to come into socialization without a preconceived idea of what their gendered role in society is and so we were thinking that probably the best way to do that would be to kind of just refer to them using they them pronouns for as long as they aren't able to tell us what they would like to be referred to as but yeah, it was not an easy decision to make and like definitely not like a hardline position, I think, for us. Like, you know, we have some like other queer families um, with trans parents who decided to like assign a gender and for reasons that also make sense. And people do have a lot of strong feelings about it, but I think maybe what I would say about it is that like the decision around the pronouns is not the same thing as the general approach to how you educate a child around gender um, and give a child the tools, the literacy to understand their position in the world and how people are going to treat them because of their body um, or because of how they communicate and what kind of language they use. And so one approach that we decided to go with, and I think it's almost like more about like all the adults in our lives, like saying to them like hey like back off a bit with your with your uh gendering <laughs> you know <laughs> like the um the ideas that you might start having about around a baby um and and less so about you know ocean and what however they might want to approach the topic <laughs> i don't know does that align with you <laughs> yeah i think so um, yeah, no, I think you've nailed it, yeah. 
No, this is interesting. For me, it's less of an issue because people gender them all the time, you know? Like today they were mostly pink, so people on the street would be she, she herring them. And, you know, if they yeah, were blue, it's, it's actually pretty wild. It's like pretty much, you know, spot on. Um, every time they were pink, it's like she, her. Every time they were blue, it's like he, him. And then other colors, it's like, you know, it depends. Then they might maybe ask, you know, is it a boy or a girl? Um, and I think I don't mind that as much. I think I, yeah, what I don't like is when people sort of be like, oh, little man, you know, let's dress you in a suit or let's buy you a car or you're going to be such a heartbreaker. Let's set you up with our niece who is three months old. I'm like, whoa, like, yeah, back <laughs> off. This is culture. They are really can be really inappropriate. <laughs> yeah, it's just quite mind-boggling. Mm. It's, I guess, like, with family, is it's, it's its own thing. Um, my family, like, knows, like, what ocean looks like naked. Um, and so they will be quite um, consistent with how they gender ocean. Um, uh, unlike strangers in the street who literally just go off like the face value of like what color are they wearing <laughs> um so that hits a bit different um but you know we're still learning how to communicate and to share and educate people around us i think things are changing like for example ocean goes one day a week to childcare and the childcare was like you know the minute we said we use they them they totally got it you know no questions asked they they yeah they use they them pronouns sometimes they sleep sleep up and then they apologize and we move on um but actually a really interesting (laughs) really interesting thing is coming up because we're traveling to poland where i'm from in less than a month and and polish as a language is extremely gendered so so you literally can't talk about someone without using the gendered um, gendered language and it's not just pronouns it's you know it's verbs it's um adjectives everything is gendered so yeah it definitely can be hard to navigate and i still haven't decided how i'm gonna do that uh, some people just use the male and female forms interchangeably um yes i actually don't know maybe it would be interesting to see if there are any um, any people living in Poland with babies that they decided not to gender at birth and see how they navigate that. Thank you so much to our wonderful guests, Azu Mary and their baby Ocean, for talking to us about their queer family journey. We hope listeners enjoy their stories as much as we did. This is the end of episode one of Queer Brood. In episode two, Anya Saravanan speaks to Tash, a proud Pallava woman who talks us through some of the intersections of her queerness, culture and family. And Sazia Sadek, a proud trans woman of colour and the co-founder of Trans Sisters United, about her journey to finding herself and the importance of chosen family. Queer Brood is produced by queer broadcasters from 3CR in Nam, with financial support from the city of Yarra. Queer Brood programs can be downloaded from www.3cr.org.au and listened to on your favourite podcast app. If this episode has brought up anything you'd like to talk about, you can call QLife on 1300 555 727 or via web chat at
at qlife.org.au.